1: fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.
0: Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's Wednesday, March 29th, 2023, the 798th day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. A warm welcome and hello to all of you listening to the podcast on the day of its release. The only way to do that is by becoming a paid subscriber at I'mYourModerator.Substack.com. You can do so for as little as $50 a year or $5 a month. And in doing so, you will be supporting me, the work I do, and this show as it expands. And if you can't or you simply don't want to, continue listening to the podcast for free on a wide variety of podcast platforms and, of course, Rumble. All I ask is that you share it with your friends. You can find the links to the podcast, the writing, the social media, and the merch site by visiting linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. So yesterday, we discussed Cricket Burgers, and I wanted to update the Cricket Burger story. I didn't think it would be happening. You didn't think it would be happening. There was a good chance we were never going to talk about Cricket Burgers again. Okay, there wasn't a good chance of that, but there was a good chance that we weren't going to have a cricket burger related issue arise today. This is from the BBC this morning. Italy moves to ban lab grown meat to protect food heritage. Italy's right wing government has backed a bill that would ban laboratory produced meat and other synthetic foods, highlighting Italian food heritage and health protection. Wait a second, lab grown meat's not good for you? If the proposals go through, breaking the ban would attract fines of up to 60,000 euros. Francesco Lolo Brigida, who runs the rebranded Ministry for Agriculture and Food Sovereignty, spoke of the importance of Italy's food tradition. The farmers' lobby praised the move, but it was a blow for some animal welfare groups, which have highlighted lab made meat as a solution to issues protecting the environment from carbon emissions and food safety. So the climate change regime lost again. The global regime lost again. Very interesting. Georgia Maloney, who is the new Italian prime minister as of last year, took some hits early on from sovereign nationalists around the world as she continued to, at least in her language, support Ukraine people began worrying oh is she just another globalist well this is some indication that perhaps Italy's government is headed in the right direction when the farmers lobby is praising a move and the animal welfare groups who are only doing animal welfare to enhance the climate change agenda are upset well maybe that's a good thing and I'm sure quite sure being half italian That Italians don't want to eat cricket burgers or lab-grown meat. And no week on the show would be complete lately without another story about how the walls are closing in later again on Donald Trump. They're going to get him one of these times. You know how the walls always just keep closing in. And I mean, eventually the walls have to to like touch each other and squash Trump in the middle of all of them. Right. I mean, that's what it means for walls to close in. Gosh, it's like Trump's not even in that room with the moving walls. This is from the Daily Mail today. Manhattan Trump grand jury set to break for a month. The Manhattan grand jury examining former President Donald Trump's role In hush money payments to Stormy Daniels isn't expected to hear evidence in the case for the next month due to a previously scheduled hiatus, according to a person familiar with the proceedings as first reported by Politico. Taking a victory lap on Wednesday before a round of golf at Mar-a-Lago, Trump posted accolades for the jury deciding his legal fate. He wrote, I have gained such respect for this grand jury and perhaps even the grand jury system as a whole. The evidence is so overwhelming in my favor and so ridiculously bad for the highly partisan and hateful district attorney that the grand jury is saying, hold on, we are not a rubber stamp, which most grand juries are branded as being. We are not going to vote against a preponderance of evidence or against large numbers of legal scholars all saying there is no case here. Drop this sick witch hunt now. So congratulations, Donald Trump. I guess you have another month of freedom. Before those walls finally close in and squash you in that room with the moving walls that you are definitely not in. Hey, regime, your prisoner is in another castle. Also yesterday at the beginning of the show, I talked about how I didn't want to spend too much time on this show covering the shooting in Tennessee on Monday. And I wasn't sure how that would go over, but it's been pretty well received Again, it's not that I think the issue is not important. Certainly, the event itself is important, and it's especially important for the people who are directly affected by it. It's very sad. Our prayers are with them. But we can quickly extract the meaning of this story, know how it will be used and used against us, and we can continue to focus on the big picture, which I think is the right thing to do. Now, conservatives, in quotes, out there in the media, Con Inc., the GOP establishment and elite, the DeSantis Simps, whatever you want to call all these people, the Daily Wire types, the people at National Review and Commentary and the Dispatch, the cast of Fox News, the conservative influencers who were never banned from any of their platforms. They're going to spend days and days on this. And the problem with that is, that they are participating in the emotional chaos that these events produce. And doing that pulls all the attention onto what they're doing. And I talked a couple of weeks ago about how this segment of mainstream corporate style conservatism, I mean, they do still call themselves conservatives, love to focus on the trans stuff because it is where they can agree with the America First people in their disdain for what the left is doing regarding the gender agenda. But they're allowed to talk about this without getting in trouble from the left. No one cares about being called a transphobe, okay? It's a ridiculous term. People aren't scared of trans people. They want to stop the system from creating trans people out of perfectly normal, happy kids. Virtually everyone knows the left is wrong about trans issues, including the left. And not just that it's wrong, but that it's evil and they're all lying about it. So that is extremely fertile ground for these mainstream conservatives to reattract an audience that they are consistently losing By being so overtly anti-Trump, anti-MAGA, and anti-the America First agenda, fully on board with the globalism and the global regime agenda when it comes to virtually anything else, on the instances where they disagree with the left, it's usually only a matter of degrees while they accept the overall premise of what the left is talking about. Now, the problem with this is when it comes to events like this shooting in Nashville and everybody gets immediately emotional about it, you have to take a stand. You have to say, you're not taking my guns. This is a trans person. This is anti-Christian terrorism. And again, it's all those things. Not saying those aren't correct, but you don't need three days of conversation to figure that out. This conversation can be had by the normies, I guess. But the problem is when these con ink people who are explicitly against us in every way imaginable, use these issues to rope everyone back in. Oh, you know, the Daily Wire, they're not so bad. They're really great on these trans issues. They seem like really good guys and maybe they just have different ideas about COVID and lockdowns and masks and mail-in balloting and election fraud and the very violent insurrection and the vaccines and vaccine mandates. Virtually all of them promoted the vaccines. These are the people whose style of communication and focus on issues has led conservatism, in quotes, over the last 30 or 40 years into being a communist movement that simply says, hey, commies, why don't you just slow it down a little bit? Everyone's catching on. And we don't need that. We don't need to see these people being right about the shooting in Tennessee and think, oh, yeah, they really are on our side. They've been on our side the whole time. They're not on our side. Use any of those litmus tests. Which of those issues did they get right? And the answer is they didn't get any of them right, except relative to those leftists who wanted to do all those things harder. Okay, lockdowns don't work, never worked, always, would have a terrible impact, not only on the United States and small businesses, but on the people of the world. And of course it did. By the summer of 2020, there were already studies out, articles in the New York Times, about how hundreds of millions of people would be pushed into extreme poverty from lockdowns. But nonetheless, Every one of those corporate conservatives was saying, yeah, you know, we really should stay home. And oh, I get it. It was two weeks to slow the spread, but we really need to keep staying home. And then after a month and a half and everybody was like, hey, there's no reason for us to stay home. They went full on with masks. Guys, wear a mask. It's the polite thing to do. So again, right compared to the most extreme leftists, but not relative to reality. They were wrong about each and every one of those major things. It is so easy and so safe to be right about the Tennessee shooter on Tuesday. Literally anyone can do it. And so they do it. They throw you a bone. They say, look, we're on the same side. We're not like those crazy leftists who are always focused on the gender agenda. We're on the right. And just also always focused on that crazy gender agenda. And we won't talk about election fraud. We won't talk about the global regime. We won't talk about Ukrainian Nazis. We won't talk about color revolutions. We're going to say attacking George Soros' anti-Semitism. Hey, what are they doing? They're certainly not helping you. And you don't need to let them back into your good graces just because they said the right things about trans issues. So let's get back to the big picture. This is from Politico today. Credit Suisse hid $700 million from IRS, Senate investigators say. Credit Suisse concealed more than $700 million in accounts from the IRS, flouting a 2014 plea deal the bank made with the Justice Department for wide-ranging criminal tax evasion, the Senate Finance Committee said in a report released Wednesday. The troubled Swiss bank, which is being acquired by rival UBS, broke the terms of the deal when it failed to tell the Justice Department about transferring nearly a hundred million dollars belonging to a U.S. Latin American family from large undisclosed accounts to other banks for almost a decade. The report said, hey, who's the family? The Senate investigation determined that Credit Suisse's former head of private banking for Latin America played a significant role in handling the family's assets. Based on information requests from the committee, the bank identified 23 undeclared accounts belonging to ultra-wealthy U.S. citizens with more than $20 million at the bank. The Senate report noted that more concealed accounts could be uncovered as the bank's review continues. At the center of this investigation are greedy Swiss bankers and catnapping government regulators, and the result appears to be a massive ongoing conspiracy to help ultra-wealthy U.S. citizens to evade taxes and rip off their fellow American citizens, Committee Chair Ron Wyden, Democrat of Oregon, said. So the communists are in on the game. The bank had paid $2.6 billion under the 2014 plea agreement with Justice. Credit Suisse got a discount on the penalty it faced in 2014 for enabling tax evasion because bank executives swore up and down they'd get out of the business of defrauding the United States, he added. This investigation shows Credit Suisse did not make good on that promise and the bank's pending acquisition does not wipe the slate clean. The revelations pose potentially significant problems for Credit Suisse, which reached an agreement on March 19th to be bought and have its legal liabilities assumed by domestic Swiss rival UBS. They nationalized it. The massive merger of the financial institutions was hastened by Swiss authorities and regulators who feared that collapse of Credit Suisse, which sustained billions of dollars of losses in 2021 and faced several scandals, could send shockwaves through the global financial system. UBS announced Wednesday that Sergio Ermati, a former CEO of the bank who steered UBS through the 2008 financial crisis, would return to oversee the Credit Suisse takeover. Oh, thank goodness. Credit Suisse does not tolerate tax evasion. In its core, the report describes legacy issues, some from a decade ago, and we have implemented extensive enhancements since then to root out individuals who seek to conceal assets from tax authorities said Simone Meyer, a spokesperson for the bank. Credit Suisse's new leadership team has cooperated with the committee's inquiry and has supported the work of Senator Wyden, including in respect of suggested policy solutions to help strengthen the financial industry's ability to detect undisclosed U.S. persons, Meyer said. As part of its investigation, the committee also found that Credit Suisse abetted U.S. businessman Dan Horsky, a dual citizen who admitted to concealing 220 million dollars from the U.S. government in 2016 in one of the largest criminal tax evasion cases in American history. Credit Suisse bankers were aware of Horsky's American citizenship and worked with him to obscure the ownership of his accounts from the IRS, the report said. So that's very interesting. I would think that maybe we should try to, you know, get that money back. But here's Donald Trump on what's going on in the banking crisis. He released this video statement yesterday.
2: Just a few years ago, I handed Joe Biden the fastest economic recovery in recorded history. But as soon as he came into office, he quickly blew it all up. It was a shame. So sad to watch. I knew what was happening. I could see it. And so could others. Biden and the Radical Democrat Congress single-handedly created the highest inflation in decades. They spent trillions of dollars wage war on American energy and pursued the socialist joke known as the Green New Deal, an absolute disaster for our country. Now the inflation and high interest rates that Joe Biden caused have resulted in the Biden banking crisis, a disaster of historic proportions. We are seeing bank failures left and right. Biden and his enablers in Congress are directly responsible for creating this economic catastrophe. And with Joe Biden at the wheel, it will only get worse. That's what's happening in almost every single sector. America needs a president who knows how to handle the economy. Under my leadership, we built the greatest economy in the history of the world. In fact, we really did it twice. Now we will do it a third time, and this time it'll stay. I will unleash American energy to get prices down immediately. I will stop the Biden inflation nightmare, and that will go very quickly. I will reverse the Biden tax hikes and regulation hikes and return to a pro-jobs, pro-growth, pro-worker policy that puts America first. Together, we will save our economy from destruction. November 5th, 2024 cannot come fast enough. Thank you.
0: So we were talking yesterday about the big picture, about the moves away from the global regime toward the multipolar world, the moves away from the central banking system. This is from The Telegraph UK this morning. Saudi Arabia set to join anti-West bloc with China and Russia. And that's bloc with a C, not bloc with a CK, like an assembly of governing bodies. Saudi Arabia is joining an anti-Western influence bloc formed by Russia and China in a sign of Riyadh's deepening ties with Beijing as the U.S. pivots away from the Middle East. Oh, the U.S. is pivoting away. Is that what's happening? Or are those countries pivoting away from the West? And you got to remember, the West is the global regime. We may consider ourselves part of the West, but for the purposes of Of this framing, the West equals the global regime. The Kingdom's Cabinet approved a plan to join the Shanghai Cooperation Organization as a quote-unquote dialogue partner, a precursor to being granted full membership. State news agency SPA announced on Wednesday, and you see, it's only the state news when it's other countries' media. In America, the state news is actually the free press. Once you go through the full inversion within the false reality, our state media, even NPR, literal state media is not state media. Just like the uh, CBC in Canada is not state media. The BBC in the UK, not state media. You get it? Because they're part of the regime. They are the literal mouthpiece of the global state. They're not State media. They just don't count as that. State media is what we call propaganda organizations, which means news outlets in other countries who don't say the things the global regime wants them to say. Formed in 2001 by Russia, China and former Soviet states in Central Asia, the SCO is a political and security block of countries spanning much of Eurasia and has expanded to include India and Pakistan with a view to challenging Western influence in the region. Why is there Western influence in that region? Like if they want to wear denim jeans and listen to rock and roll, that's cool. But our countries have no business determining what kind of life is available in those countries. That's those people's responsibility. Iran also signed documents for full membership last year. The SEO holds an annual summit to discuss economic cooperation and mutual security often focusing on terrorism, separatism, and extremism. Though divergent interests limit the group's effectiveness, member states are planning a counter-terrorism exercise in Russia this August, though the SCO is not a military alliance. It's interesting, isn't it, that they talk about their problems being terrorism, separatism, and extremism. Those are literally tools of the global regime to destabilize societies. And then they say that the problem is The divergent interests of these countries that limit their effectiveness. So they're not on the same page pursuing the exact same agenda like the W.E.F. is, for instance, which means that they are less effective. You see what you really need is a fully global agenda. You got to get absolutely everybody on the exact same page. That's the perspective of this writer. That's the perspective of the global regime. And it's interesting to see how that's applied to the way they view the world and what other countries are doing. In this view, they're not pursuing a multipolar world order where the countries determine their own fate. They're doing world domination badly. And as for their effectiveness being limited, I guess we'll see. It sounds like their effectiveness is increasing absolutely every day. Riyadh's decision to join the bloc comes less than three weeks after a reconciliation agreement between Saudi Arabia and Iran, which was hailed as a major coup for Beijing, who brokered the talks. While Oman and Iraq had hosted previous efforts to restore relations between Shiite-majority Iran and mainly Sunni Saudi Arabia, Riyadh credited Chinese President Xi Jinping's offer last year to act as a bridge between the two regional rivals as the thing that sealed the deal. China's deepening relations with the Gulf region comes as the Biden administration seeks to disengage from the Middle East with a view to challenging Beijing's rising influence elsewhere. Oh, really? Where else? Oh, that's right. Africa. And, of course, Taiwan. But they're failing spectacularly in both of those ventures as well. And you might remember last year that Joe Biden went to Saudi Arabia to beg Mohammed bin Salman for oil and was thoroughly rebuked. Biden has been begging these countries to get back on the global plan for his entire time as fake president. And he's not receiving any support from world leaders which is why they constantly talk about how he's reunited the NATO alliance in Ukraine. Sure, he has. The U.S. has long served as a security partner for Saudi Arabia, and Washington's withdrawal has prompted its Gulf allies to diversify partners. Again, it's really funny how they're framing all of this as a strategic move by the great Joe Biden. Oh, I'm just going to leave Saudi Arabia. So that we can focus on battling China elsewhere. Saudi Arabia is going to be really pissed when they find out they have to diversify partners. We'll show them. Mr. Xi laid the groundwork for Saudi Arabia joining the SCO during a visit to the kingdom last December, sources told Reuters, as part of a plan to further increase China's influence in the region. In a phone call on Tuesday with Saudi de facto leader, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, Mr. Xi promised to make further contributions to promote peace and stability in the Middle East. And isn't it interesting how they describe Mohammed bin Salman as a de facto leader? He's just the leader. Again, total inversion within the false reality. The totally unelected Joe Biden, the totally unelected Lula da Silva down in Brazil, those are legitimate presidents in the eyes of the global state propaganda media, and Mohammed bin Salman is just a de facto leader. China will play a major role in strengthening regional unity and cooperation, he said in remarks reported by state media. And then there's this today from Watcher.guru. China completes liquefied natural gas trade with Chinese yuan, Ending US dollar reliance for energy trades. In what is a landmark development, China and France have completed an LNG gas trade using the Chinese yuan, thus ending the reliance on the US dollar for energy trades. Moreover, Reuters reported that the transaction involving 65,000 tons of liquefied natural gas from the UAE marked the first yuan settled LNG trade through the Shanghai Petroleum and Natural Gas Exchange. Chinese national oil company CNOOC and France's Total Energies completed the transaction on Tuesday, according to reports. Additionally, Energy World reported Total Energies confirmed the transaction, quote, involved LNG imported from the UAE but did not comment further, end quote. All eyes have been on the state of the U.S. dollar with reports coming regarding the massive implications of potential de-dollarization. Subsequently, amidst a budding banking crisis and macroeconomic factors, a landmark transaction has taken place that could grant new merit to those concerns. China and France have completed an LNG trade using the Chinese yuan in a landmark transaction that ends the reliance on the U.S. dollar in energy trades. Moreover, The development showcases the growing prominence of the yuan amidst the growing concern connected to the U.S. dollar. The Chinese yuan's establishment as an international currency has been a focus for the nation. Additionally, the country has set to utilize it in gas and oil trades in recent years as the dollar has stumbled. Conversely, Russia has embraced the Chinese currency amidst various sanctions. Chinese President Xi Jinping spoke during a recent visit to the Saudi capital, Riyadh, according to Energy World, stating that China would make full use of the Shanghai exchange as a platform to carry out yuan settlement of oil and gas trades. So there it is. They just do not care about the old system, the global regime system, the central banker system anymore. Now, how is Israel doing in Their movement to rid themselves of the invisible enemy. This is from NBC News Today. Israeli leaders lash out at Biden's criticism as judicial overhaul plan sparks a rare public rift. Uh Uh-oh. Israeli leaders engaged in a rare public clash with the United States on Wednesday after President Joe Biden criticized their contentious judicial overhaul plan. Biden ignited a political firestorm with his suggestion that Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu should walk away from his proposal to weaken Israel's Supreme Court, and warned that the country cannot continue down this road. Netanyahu and his allies responded defiantly to the direct rebuke from Washington, asserting that Israel would make its own decisions. Opposition leaders seized on the open feud as a sign that the now-paused changes threatened the country's crucial friendship with the United States and with it, Israel's security. You get that? If we go through with this whole thing, well, the evil twin faction in the United States isn't going to be our friend anymore, and that is going to harm our national security. And there we have the full and complete narrative from the global regime. Speaking to reporters Tuesday, Biden said he was very concerned about Israeli democracy after months of protests that have pitted Netanyahu's right wing government against hundreds of thousands of demonstrators on the streets, as well as business leaders and military reservists. And they basically mentioned business leaders and military reservists in all of the articles about this issue. Isn't that interesting? Why mention business leaders and military reservists? Netanyahu announced this week that he was pausing the proposed legislation and opening negotiations with opposition parties, but he has also promised far-right members of his governing coalition that he will pass the judicial overhaul in some form by the summer. Oh, they're far-right. Netanyahu is far-right. That's it. And once the global state propaganda media applies that label to somebody, you really kind of know how things are lining up, don't you? Like many strong supporters of Israel, I'm very concerned and I'm concerned that they get this straight. They cannot continue down this road, Biden said. Well, isn't that interesting? Hmm. Donald Trump moved the embassy to Jerusalem and he's the one who got the Abraham Accords done. Joe Biden is telling them that they're not allowed to change their government. How is that strongly supporting the people of Israel? Speaking in unusually direct terms about a U.S. ally, Biden said he had no intention of inviting Netanyahu to the White House in the near term and appeared to question whether the Israeli leader sincerely wanted to compromise. I hope he walks away from it, Biden said of the plan. Hopefully the prime minister will act in a way that he is going to try to work out some genuine compromise. But that remains to be seen, he said. Netanyahu responded with a series of tweets just before 1 a.m. Jerusalem time. Israel is a sovereign country which makes its decisions by the will of its people and not based on pressures from abroad, including from the best of friends, he said. His allies were less restrained and accused the Biden administration of interfering in Israel's domestic politics. Itamar Ben-Gavir Israel's national security minister and leader of the far right Jewish power party told Israeli radio that Biden, quote, needs to understand that Israel is no longer a star on the U.S. flag. We are a democracy, and I expect the U.S. president to understand that. Ah, you hate to see it. All of it. You just really hate to see it. Another minister tweeted that Biden had, quote, fallen victim to fake news. He later deleted the tweet. Israeli opposition parties pointed to the public clash as evidence of the deteriorating relationship between the U.S. and Israel under Netanyahu's leadership. Oh, it's under Netanyahu's leadership. It's not under the fake president of America's leadership. It's not under the leadership of the global regime. It's under Netanyahu's leadership. Now it all makes sense. The far right guy is the one who's responsible for all of the problems. Speaking hours later at the U.S.-led Summit for Democracy, Netanyahu struck a more conciliatory tone. While, quote, Israel and the United States have had their occasional differences, end quote, the alliance between them was unshakable and nothing can change that, he said. Protesters opposed to Netanyahu's judicial overhaul announced a demonstration in front of a U.S. embassy building in Tel Aviv on Thursday to rally in support of Biden's criticism. Opponents of the overhaul argue they amount to a power grab that threatened to push the country toward dictatorship. Nanyahu argues that he is merely rebalancing power toward elected lawmakers and away from a judiciary that the right views as overstepping. And that makes plenty of sense, especially as we have witnessed and are witnessing what's happening in Brazil. The judiciary down there has essentially determined that it is their choice about who's president. Obviously, the election was stolen. Nothing in the world could be more obvious than the fact that the Brazilian election was stolen, but not according to de Moraes. And that's all that matters. And of course, the installation of Lula da Silva as president is lauded by the global regime. The CIA was down there influencing that election. We know what the machines can do. The same people, the same global regime is supporting the opposition to this judicial reform in Israel. And strangely, just think about this. That same global regime is protecting a stronghold of corruption and criminality and human rights atrocities in Ukraine. Funding, you guessed it, Ukrainian Nazis. Gosh, it's incredible, isn't it? That these people from countries that aren't Israel and aren't Brazil are influencing the outcomes of Brazilian elections and the style of government, the system of government in Israel. While supporting Nazis in Ukraine and telling us that if we talk about any of this, it's anti-Semitic. Well, just how tricky are these Prussians? Biden and Netanyahu have known each other for around 40 years, and the president routinely describes himself as a Zionist. But the relationship has appeared increasingly strained since Netanyahu returned to power in December at the head of a coalition government that includes parties from the far right. How dare they? How dare those Israelis have an unapproved government? U.S. officials have refused to meet with far right Israeli ministers and Washington forcefully condemned Israel's finance minister after he called for a Palestinian town to be, quote unquote, erased. He later retracted the comment. Oh, I'm sure they framed it exactly right. They just quoted one word, told you what it is that he said, and now You get to understand that the far right in Israel wants to exterminate Palestinians. Is that what he said? Come on. The Palestinians have criticized the U.S. for confronting Netanyahu's government with words, but not concrete action. Oh, so we should listen to them and force Israel to listen to us. Totally makes sense. Senior figures in Netanyahu's orbit have also accused the U.S. of crossing the line from good-faith criticism to intentionally undermining the prime minister. Netanyahu's 31-year-old son, Yair, who has become an influential part of his father's political circle, retweeted claims the U.S. was bankrolling the protests against Israel's government. The U.S. ambassador to Israel, Tom Nides, was forced to deny the claims, calling them absurd. The question of when Netanyahu will go to the White House has also become an increasingly sensitive Israeli political issue, with analysts interpreting the absence of an invitation as a sign of American frustration. The right leaning Israel Today newspaper last week ran a headline asking, Where is Netanyahu's invitation to the White House? Despite high level political tensions, cooperation between the U.S. and the Israeli militaries and security agencies continues. And both sides say they are committed to a deal that would allow Israelis to travel to the U.S. without visas. What in the world do any of these issues have to do with one another? Unless, of course, these are just things that the global regime wants that are getting harder and harder to attain in Israel. Almost like there's some sort of split, some separation there, like they're moving away from one another, just like all of these other countries are moving away from the global regime. Israel's parliament has passed several laws in recent months to meet American requirements for the visa waiver program. As part of the agreement, the U.S. is also insisting that Israel end its long-held practice of treating Palestinian Americans differently from other U.S. citizens, including denying them entry at Ben Gurion Airport when they make visits to the occupied West Bank. See, I didn't know that Israel was actually an American colony. But back then, I also didn't know that America was a colony of the global regime. And so really, Israel is just a colony of the global regime. And the people of Israel don't like that very much. Oh, look at the picture that's emerging. And consider these protests and their relevance in the world because they are being framed in some circles as Israel's January 6th just like we saw a few months ago, Brazil's January 6th. And we've seen January sixths all over the world. And we've seen them across time because January 6th, of course, was essentially America's Reichstag fire. The headline here in Israel dot com is pounding the table or Israel's January 6th. There is an old trial lawyer's maxim that, quote, if the law is against you, pound the facts, if the facts are against you, pound the law, if the law and the facts are against you, pound the table. Consider the wave of protests in Israel against the proposed judicial reforms as the equivalent of pounding the table. It would be a shame an offense against democracy and the humiliation of a right wing government if it allows these protests to derail the proposals and delay the process. These protests are Israel's equivalent of January 6th, the supplanting of democracy with mobocracy, except that I fear the January 6th rioters at the American Capitol were a little more sincere in their beliefs. And I understand that this is accepting the central narrative about January 6th. That's the caveat. Let's still move forward with the argument, with the information. First, the facts. The weakness of the protesters' arguments is illustrated by their ever-shifting nature. Some just obsessively hate Netanyahu and so must oppose anything he supports. The suggestion that any of these reforms will impact his interminable trials is absurd and far-fetched and is an accusation that is incessantly repeated without a shred of evidence to support it. He'll be able to have more influence over the composition of the courts years from now? His trial will still be going on? he'll be able to pass legislation shielding him from liability and not pay a political price for that. The answer in a democracy is more democracy, not less. And think about the conversation around Trump and the composition of the Supreme Court here in America. Sounds like a similar conversation, doesn't it? Second, the notion that the proposed reforms will impair Israel's democracy is similarly ludicrous and is made by those who assume that asserting it monotonously over and over is itself proof of its veracity. The obvious implication is that for the first 50 years of Israel's existence, it was not a democracy and only became one when 25 years ago, Aharon Barak usurped the rights of people and imposed a judicial fiefdom in which a dozen or so robed lawyers make decisions in every aspect of life, political, religious, financial, military, instead of the people's elected representatives and its duly constituted coalition government. It sounds as ridiculous as it reads. It cannot be a threat to democracy if the goal is to restore Israel's democracy to what it was before the Barack revolution. Government by a few oligarchs is the quintessence of democracy? Is democracy not the rule of the people? Why have elections altogether? if the people's choices are frustrated in their ability to implement their platforms? What a wonderful question. The obvious answer is that the will of the people is only obstructed when they elect a right-wing government that adheres to tradition, love of the people, and land of Israel, and willing to take a strong hand against our enemies. When the people, very sporadically, reality reminds us, Elect a left-wing government, the court turns a blind eye to its excesses and trampling of human rights. Thus, third, the talk of civil war and civil disobedience that is accompanying it and interfering with people's rights should not be tolerated. Israel's right wing, not to mention the settlers themselves, endured an unforgivable trauma when 9,500 Jews were expelled from their homes in Gush Katif and northern Shamron. The high court will intervene and halt an attempt to remove a fence illegally erected by Bedouin to seize more land and ignored the expulsion of thousands of Jews from their homes. Spare us the crocodile tears in the placards decrying these reforms as grounds for civil war and a threat to democracy. If the right didn't attempt to overthrow the democratic process during the expulsion from Gaza, even though that ignoble process was a corruption of democracy. The left should not be making threats about changes to the court's method of judicial appointment and the limits of the court's jurisdiction. This is not a civil war over slavery or national destiny. It is a threat of civil war from the people who, like on January 6th in D.C., do not respect the results of a democratic election in which those who voted for the government were fully aware of the proposed reforms and voted accordingly. And again, it misconstrues the situation on January 6th and misconstrues what the results of our election were. But we can leave that aside for now and understand the framing and what this author is trying to get across. Moreover, we should certainly contrast the treatment of today's writers and the protesters of the Gush Katif expulsion. The latter were told that their protests were a breach of democratic norms. Thousands were arrested. And thousands more were kept away by the government, artificially closing roads and access points to them. The judicial reforms protesters, by contrast, are coddled, allowed to block intersections at will, upset people's schedules and lives, and are celebrated in the media. We've heard that before, haven't we? Right here. We've seen it in other nations as well. Anyone who wants to know why there is such distrust on the right of Israel's Supreme Court and mainstream media should look no further than the disparate treatment between the two groups. Aharon Barak had no sympathy for the plight of the settlers in Gush Katif, and so stripped them of their human rights, permitted their expulsion, the destruction of their homes, the extinction of their businesses, and even the uprooting of their dead from their graves. That is not equality before the law, but simple power politics, and cruel and mean-spirited at that. Equality before the law means applying laws of civil disobedience consistently across the political spectrum. Fourth, the threats of grievous harm to the economy are objectively preposterous unless they are promoted by these suicidal activists. It recalls the statement made by a historian in another context that the demonstrators are trying to induce, quote, a real life disaster in order to thwart a mythical catastrophe, end quote, What could better describe the slogans of left wing activists worldwide as handed down to them by the global regime? Create a real life disaster in order to thwart a mythical catastrophe. Consider our energy policy in order to reduce climate change. Consider our war in Ukraine in order to protect their sovereign borders From the brutal Russian invasion, the regime has made that war a real life disaster to thwart the mythical catastrophe of Russia taking over all of Europe. It's comically stupid. If anything, investors seek a business climate that is stable and in which contracts are respected not one in which a court can unilaterally impose its reading of a contract on the parties against their clear meaning and intent simply because it wants to. The reforms will strengthen the business climate unless the protesters, in their madness and anger against their loss of power in a democracy, sabotage their own businesses and Israel's prosperity. Sadly, in the Middle East, suicidal behavior is not unknown. And if in the short term, there is a brief economic downturn, We survived Pharaoh and can survive this as well, especially in a world where Israel's know-how is desired and benefits millions of people. Fifth, the exaggerated and risible laments have purposely triggered politicians across the world to weigh in on Israel's domestic concerns. Quite an embarrassing display. It has even induced President Joe Biden to demand that Israel's parliament act only with a national consensus. Perhaps he forgot. His words are usually written by others that in the United States, he passed his signature legislation without a consensus, relying on just a narrow Democratic majority. Yes, he must have forgotten that before he started to lecture us about our legislation. The best thing the government can do besides arresting and incarcerating those who block roads and highways is pass the legislation quickly. And two weeks afterward, people will have moved on to something else negotiations on proposed legislation takes place in committee those who choose to boycott scream obstruct and intimidate but not offer any cogent proposals forfeit the right to have their voices heard where it counts in the Knesset, not in the street the fact that so many protest leaders including the politicians have called for similar reforms in the past only underscores the hypocrisy of the left and the political farce it is orchestrating nothing will change in israel And the people's inclinations and policy preferences will continue to be thwarted unless the court's jurisdiction is limited and the override clause is passed. Without that, any legislation, including a change in the composition of the Judicial Selection Committee, will be overturned by the court, which perceives itself wrongly as the ultimate power in society. Similarly, the Knesset must pass a law permitting the override of Supreme Court decisions that repudiate its laws. What is the threshold? It is a good discussion, but is a civil war justified if the threshold is 64 and not 67? That too is absurd. Of course, 64 seems too convenient, the coalition's current Knesset majority, but if the threshold is 65 or 67, then a Supreme Court majority of 13 or 14 justices, not 12, should be mandated if the court wishes to invalidate a law passed by the Knesset. After all, If the Knesset law is so egregious, the politicians will pay a steep price at the next elections, of which in Israel there is no shortage. And judges, despite their arrogant overreach, never pay a political price for anything. Those who are unaccountable to the public should be wary of imposing their views on the public, not eagerly and tendentiously seek such opportunities. And obviously there should be no such individual in a civil society like Israel's attorney general who unilaterally has the right to order the government to do something or not do something, invalidate legislation or demand legislation. Why vote for a government if power is so concentrated in one person? And again, these are the right questions to be asking. How have so many of the world's governments figured out ways to extract all the power of the people and place all of that power in the bodies they have full control over. You are watching the system at work. Whatever governmental system a country has, the regime has people figuring out how to move through that system creating loopholes, exploiting loopholes and further infiltrating the government until that government does everything the global regime demands and the people have no power whatsoever. But back to the article, it is difficult to conceive of any Israeli who voted for the current government joining or supporting the protests or even having sympathy for them. As such, what we see before us are the sour grapes of sore losers who would rather destroy Israel as a Jewish state and a prosperous democracy than to see a right wing government succeed in the mission for which it was elected. They have no respect for the people's vote. Why then should they respect the time, lives and livelihoods of their fellow citizens? I hope the small number of protesters, yes, a small mob in comparison to the population that voted for the government. Has the decency to stop pounding the table, that the government has the strength and courage to pass the reforms and quickly, and we can return to facing and overcoming the real challenges that threaten our peace, prosperity, unity, and holiness. And that is by Rabbi Stephen Prusansky, who is Israel's representative and vice president and senior rabbinic fellow at the Coalition for Jewish Values. And so let's turn to this on a website called OrientalReview.com written by Andrew Koribko. The U.S.-backed color revolution in Israel just reached crisis proportions from today. At all costs, America believes that it must do whatever's necessary to prevent the Israeli state from exercising its sovereign right under Bibi's restored leadership to balance between the U.S.-led West's golden billion and the Sino-Russo entente in the new Cold War instead of decisively take the former's side against the latter. Most immediately, its deep state wants Israel to arm Kiev, which Bibi himself warned earlier this month could abruptly catalyze a crisis with Russia in Syria, thus opening a second front in the U.S.'s Eurasian-wide containment campaign. And again, consider the U.S. and the West to mean the global regime. There's no other way to describe the latest events in Israel other than as a color revolution, which refers to the use of weaponized protests to achieve regime tweaking, concessions, regime change, self-explanatory, and or a regime reboot, far-reaching constitutional reform aimed at weakening the state, usually via Bosnian-like identity federalism. These reports, any links, compellingly argue that the U.S. is behind this, with the first report proving partial State Department funding. It was already assessed as early as mid-January that, quote, Israeli protesters are functioning as useful idiots for a unipolar color revolution. The analysis of which will now be summarized before moving on to explain the reason why everything just reached crisis proportions. In brief, the liberal globalists that are formulating U.S. foreign policy nowadays despise Netanyahu, commonly known just as Bibi, for ideological reasons related to his conservative sovereigntist worldview. Amidst the impending trifurcation of international relations into the U.S. led West's Golden Billion, the Sino Russo Entente, and the informally Indian led Global South, Bibi envisages Israel multi aligning between all three de facto new Cold War blocs in order to maximize its strategic autonomy. While the legacy of allied relations with America remains strong, Bibi isn't going to allow Biden to exploit them so as to force Israel to distance itself from the Sino-Russo entente just to serve the U.S.'s zero-sum interests. Moreover, his view of domestic politics is altogether different from the ruling American elites in the sense that he isn't comfortable allowing liberal globalist ideas to infiltrate Israeli society which he fears could ultimately result in its radical revision into something that its founders never intended. It's irrelevant what the reader's position is toward Palestine, since the subject of this analysis is Israel's state-level relations with the U.S.-led West's golden billion and the Sino-Russo entente. The aforementioned context of these unprecedented tensions between those two at this historic moment in international relations— set the stage for them finally spilling over into a U.S. hybrid war on Israel over the weekend. American-aligned members of the Israeli elite, including Bibi's own defense minister, decisively turned against him and threw their support behind those color revolutionaries who've been agitating in increasingly violent ways and mass for him to abandon his judicial reforms. The incumbent leader knows that he stands little chance of fully implementing the conservative sovereigntist agenda that returned him to the premiership for the third time if the judiciary remains under the influence of liberal globalists whose true loyalty lies with the U.S. And again, that's more accurately stated as the global regime. This explains B.B.'s refusal to give up the changes that were taken advantage of by partially U.S.-funded professional protesters to serve as the so-called trigger event for setting into motion their pre-planned unrest. And what does that sound like? That sounds like virtually every country in the world, but we've seen it over and over and over again in the United States. These protesters on the left are organized and funded by the global regime. Now, sure. They might influence normal people to participate in something they believe to be spontaneous and worthwhile and representative of their values. But that's really just part of the manipulation. These things are entirely contrived, and they have a long history of doing this all over the world. Prior to his reelection, Israeli society had already proven That it's become deeply divided over the years between conservative sovereigntists and liberal globalists, which created fertile ground for those aforesaid agitational actors to manipulate large segments of the population. There's no doubt that a critical mass of society supports the latter's vision and that their resistance to BB's reforms is sincere. But the point is that they're being weaponized against the state by those professional provocateurs. And isn't it nice that this author understands the paradigm that matters in the world right now, the dichotomy that we must understand between sovereign nationalists and global communists? He's calling them conservative sovereignists and liberal globalists, but he's describing the exact same thing. Crowd control strategies and tactics are being employed to transform average protesters into tools of hybrid warfare that disrupt society intimidate those members thereof that disagree with their demands and even tempt elements of the armed forces into dangerously abandoning their duty. To be clear, the last mentioned observation is shared from the perspective of Israeli state interests in the context of this analysis and shouldn't be interpreted as a statement against the Palestinian cause. And it's interesting that he mentions the demands for the armed forces to abandon their duty particularly in context of what I mentioned earlier, how all the mainstream articles continue to mention that there are military reservists involved in the protests. The cumulative effect of this operation is that Israel has been plunged into its worst ever political crisis, the roots of which are domestic. But these pre-existing ideational differences wouldn't have reached their presently epic proportions that endanger the Israeli state had it not been for the U.S.'s meddling. The next phase of the U.S.'s hybrid war on Israel that's being driven by its ruling liberal globalist desire to sabotage Bibi's conservative sovereigntist policies could be the kindling of unconventional warfare. Again, sounds awfully familiar. Once again, no statement is being made about the Palestinian cause, just a prediction that the U.S.'s interests as its permanent military intelligence and diplomatic bureaucracy, Deep State, conceptualizes them as being at this point in time, are served by further destabilizing the Israeli state. This so-called controlled chaos is intended to facilitate regime tweaking, regime change and or a regime reboot even as far as an IDF Mossad coup against Bibi and a forced two-state solution. Isn't that interesting? The global regime and various intelligence agencies across the world are overthrowing governments, just like we've always known they do. I remember growing up in the late 80s and early 90s, And the CIA overthrowing small countries in Southeast Asia or Central America or wherever. That was just something everyone understood happened. But now we have to pretend it doesn't happen. And they would never do it. They would never do it in America. They would never do it in Brazil. They would never do it in Ukraine. They would never do it in Israel. They would never do it anywhere because they're the good guys. Don't you understand? At all costs, America believes that it must do whatever's necessary to prevent the Israeli state from exercising its sovereign right under Bibi's restored leadership to balance between the U.S.-led West's golden billion and the Sino-Russo entente instead of decisively take the former side against the latter. Most immediately, its deep state wants Israel to arm Kyiv which Bibi himself warned earlier this month could abruptly catalyze a crisis with Russia in Syria. And you gotta mention how weird it is that the evil twin faction in the United States is fully supporting the Nazis in Ukraine and wants Israel to support the Nazis in Ukraine too. And there's a big movement in Israel that wants to support Nazis in Ukraine. And we're not allowed to say it because it's anti-Semitic. And don't you understand the Nazis in Ukraine aren't real Nazis because they're led by a person that we're told is Jewish, but is really just a comedic actor. But don't worry about any of that. If you talk about any of it, we're going to call you anti-Semitic and you're not going to like it. It's precisely this outcome that the U.S. wants to have happen because it could open a so-called second front in its Eurasian wide containment campaign against Russia after the most recent efforts to do so in Georgia and Moldova have thus far failed. Furthermore, a major crisis in West Asia could impede the region's accelerated rise as an independent pole of influence in the emerging multipolar world order the scenario of which became viable after the Chinese-mediated Iranian-Saudi rapprochement. Isn't that incredible? That aforementioned development coupled with Bibi's envisaged multi-alignment between the U.S.-led West's golden billion and the Sino-Russo entente could lead to the near total loss of American influence over West Asia especially if Israel starts de-dollarizing its trade like Saudi Arabia is soon expected to do. Simply put, the entire region's future role in the ongoing global systemic transition is at stake, thus explaining the grand strategic significance of Israel's U.S. exacerbated crisis. The socio-political soft security dynamics aren't in Bibi's favor, which could lead to him backing down or being overthrown. With either of those outcomes raising the chances that Israel submits to being the U.S.'s new Cold War vassal instead of continuing its trajectory as an independent player. If the military hard security dynamics become more difficult, such as in the event of a tacitly U.S.-approved intifada, then his removal could be a fait accompli unless he succeeds in imposing a military dictatorship. So as not to be understood, the preceding scenario doesn't imply that the Palestinian cause is illegitimate, but just that it can be exploited by the U.S. like all others in advance of its larger interests. In any case, the situation is extremely combustible and it's difficult to predict what will happen next. Nothing like this has ever happened before in Israel, neither domestically nor in terms of its ties with the U.S. This is literally unprecedented, especially in terms of its impact on international relations, as explained. So Israel is in the midst of its own global regime color revolution. And this news dropped yesterday. DeSantis plans to travel to Jerusalem as tumult strains Netanyahu-Biden relationship. So he's going to go clean things up. Biden won't meet with Bibi because Biden will not invite him. But Ron DeSantis is heading to Israel. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis will deliver an address next month in Jerusalem, a trip that is certain to inject the likely Republican presidential contender into Israel's national tumult and its increasingly fraught relationship with the United States. The Jerusalem Post and the Museum of Tolerance announced Tuesday that DeSantis would serve as the keynote speaker of the organization's April 27th event, his second trip to Israel as governor. The rollout of the planned foreign trip comes as the White House has escalated its rhetoric toward Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu amid his planned judicial reforms and intensifying unrest in the country. Why is the governor of Florida going to Israel twice? Is he there as an ambassador of the global regime or is he there as an ambassador of the sovereign nationalist movement? Is he there to offer support in the struggle against this color revolution? It'll be interesting to find out. We can make assumptions, but let's see. In a statement to the Jerusalem Post, DeSantis seized on the rising tension between President Joe Biden and Netanyahu by signaling Florida's continued unwavering support to the Jewish state. At a time of unnecessarily strained relations between Jerusalem and Washington, Florida serves as a bridge between the American and Israeli people, DeSantis told the Jerusalem Post. And CNN goes on at length. But it is very interesting that DeSantis is going over there. Is he going over there with the approval of the fake Biden administration, with the approval of the regime or not? the way these talks go, we will have a really good hint about who and what Ron DeSantis really is and really represents. If this whole Trump DeSantis feud has not been a result of Trump and DeSantis actually feuding and only a result of the Republican faction of the global regime trying to create a feud where there is not one, then we can expect to see that Ron DeSantis will be supporting sovereign nationalism in Israel and working against this push to keep control in the hands of the judiciary. And finally, you know I've been raving about the PrussiaGate series by Will Zoll, PrussiaGate.substack.com, and I've been obsessively listening to the readings by my friend Patrick Gunnells Of all of these articles, they do these little series that explain fully a lot of the historical context that we absolutely must understand in analyzing the global regime and what's happening. And I've been listening to the Reichswef series that explains how the World Economic Forum grew out of Prussian ideology and the Nazi movement. And the effect it's having on the world. They do an entire article about George Soros. They do an entire article about Klaus Schwab. And in the Soros article, they discuss color revolutions because George Soros has been orchestrating color revolutions around the world for decades. And in that article, they cite this piece from Richard Poe Richard Poe is a New York Times bestselling author and award winning journalist this is from Friday, July 16th, 2004. It's called Velvet Revolution USA, George Soros and America's Coming Election Crisis, a three-part series. Poe writes, if you enjoyed the election crisis of 2000, you're going to love what Democrat leaders are cooking up for November. And again, 2004. This is not a normal election. Democrat mega-donor George Soros told the Associated Press on June 10th. These are not normal times. Indeed, they are not. And Mr. Soros himself bears much of the blame. George Soros has purchased the Democratic Party, charges Republican National Committee spokeswoman Christine Iverson. Some might dismiss Miss Iverson's comment as hyperbole. However, Soros's massive soft money contributions have indisputably given him power over Democrat strategy. The billionaire currency trader now busies himself instructing Democrats in a new and dangerous style of political brinksmanship, new to Americans at least. Soros' relish for Byzantine intrigue and reckless power grabs may strike some Americans as novel. However, it follows a long, if not exactly honored, tradition endemic to the blood drenched soil of Central Europe, whence Mr. Soros springs. Soros' leadership has manifested itself in ways both subtle and striking, both direct and indirect, as Democrat tactics devolve ever deeper into a fever swamp of slander, sedition, violence, and crude propaganda. Consider, for example, a recent proposal by congressional Democrats to bring in UN monitors to police our upcoming election. We are deeply concerned that the right of U.S. citizens to vote in free and fair elections is again in jeopardy wrote Democrat Congresswoman Eddie Bernice Johnson of Texas in a July 1st letter to U.N. Secretary General Kofi Annan. Indiana Republican Steve Byer barely managed to short circuit Johnson's proposal last Thursday by cutting off her cash flow. Byer added an amendment to a pending foreign aid bill, blocking any U.S. official from using the designated funds for U.N. election monitors. Imagine that. Democrats calling for the interference of global governing organizations to secure elections. Byer's move infuriated Representative Corinne Brown. She charged that Republicans stole the election in 2000, telling Bayer I come from Florida where you and others participated in what I call the United States coup d'etat. We need to make sure it doesn't happen again. When the Bayer Amendment came up for a vote, House Democrats voted overwhelmingly by a ratio of five to one to keep the door open for U.N. election monitors. An astonishing 161 representatives, all Democrats, voted against Bayer's proposal. The measure passed by a slim 243 to 161. Only 33 Democrats broke with their party to support Bayer's amendment. Now, that's not exactly a slim decision. But relatively slim, it should have been all of them against zero of them. Never before have U.S. lawmakers sought so openly and in such great numbers to allow foreign intervention in a U.S. election. Equally exotic from an American standpoint are the antics of a group called National People's Action, whom syndicated pundit Michelle Malkin describes as a taxpayer-funded left-wing goon squad. NPA provides muscle for Democrat dirty work. In exchange, it receives public funding from a host of government agencies, including the Department of Housing and Urban Development. Of this multiracial Chicago-based neighborhood advocacy network, Malkin writes, the group engages in what it calls direct action publicizing the home addresses of business and government leaders. It wants to shake down and then busing in protesters and school children using public school buses to invade the private property of their victims and intimidate their families. Oh, Chicago based neighborhood advocacy network focused on direct action in 2004. That's right. As Barack Obama was running for Senate in Illinois, out of Chicago. And he was a, wow, yeah, community organizer. Isn't that interesting? Could Barack Obama somehow be involved with George Soros and color revolutions? I'm shocked. In March, about 800 NPA thugs surrounded the Washington home of Bush strategist Karl Rove, demanding rights for illegal aliens. They knocked on Rove's door, pounded on his windows and chanted angrily in Spanish and English, driving Rove's children to tears. The mob dispersed only after Rove agreed to parley with its leaders in the age of Soros. Mainstream Democrats have embraced the thuggish tactics of NPA and similar groups. The sudden emergence of street thugs as a force in U.S. politics calls to mind the elevation of similar groups overseas, where Soros often bankrolls street radicals with a zest for physical confrontation. Readers should note that NPA receives funding from the Tides Foundation an institution to which Soros contributes generously, more than $13 million between 1997 and 2003. The notorious Ruckus Society also draws money from the Tides Foundation. Its rioters paralyzed Seattle during the WTO meeting there in 1999 and wreaked havoc during the 2000 Republican Convention in Philadelphia. The Ruckus Society runs a network of training camps, which have been working furiously for months to prepare street activists for the 2004 election season. But don't worry, everybody. The Democrats would never align themselves with foreign interference just to win an American election. Born in Hungary in 1930, Soros came of age under Nazi and Soviet occupation. He built his fortune wheeling and dealing in lawless nations where money buys pliant rulers and topples disobedient ones with equal facility. In his writings and interviews, Soros boasts openly of subverting governments in Croatia, Slovakia, Yugoslavia, and the Republic of Georgia. Now, like a big-game hunter facing retirement, the 73-year-old Soros seeks the ultimate trophy to crown his mantle, the head of George W. Bush on a pike. America under Bush is a danger to the world, Soros told the Washington Post in a November 3, 2003 interview. Ousting Bush, said Soros, is the central focus of my life, a matter of life and death. Soros had earlier told The Post, I believe deeply in the values of an open society. For the past 15 years, I have focused my energies on fighting for these values abroad. Now I am doing it in the United States. Experienced Soros watchers have learned to greet such sermons with a cynical yawn. As British journalist Neil Clark notes in the left wing journal New Statesman, Soros deems an open society, not if it respects human rights and basic freedoms, but if it is open for him and his associates to make money. And indeed, Soros has made money in every country he has helped to prize open. In Kosovo, for example, he has invested $50 million in an attempt to gain control of the Trepka mine complex, where there are vast reserves of gold, silver, lead, and other minerals estimated to be worth in the region of $5 billion. He thus copied a pattern he has deployed to great effect over the whole of Eastern Europe of advocating shock therapy and economic reform, then swooping in with his associates to buy valuable state assets at knockdown prices. In my article, George Soros's coup in the May 2004 issue of Newsmax magazine, I noted that Soros has good reason at this time to believe that a Democrat regime might prove more open to his way of doing business than would George W. Bush. But that is another issue. Whatever Soros really means by the term open society, Americans would be well advised to familiarize themselves with the dangerous lengths to which he has often gone to establish it. Velvet Revolution Everyone knows that Soros poured millions into Democrat coffers this election season. Yet there is more to Soros's strategy than mere largesse. Soros helped bankroll the 1989 coup d'etat that catapulted dissident playwright Václav Havel to the presidency of the Czech Republic. The relatively bloodless uprising acquired the nickname Velvet Revolution. To this day, people throughout the former Soviet bloc use the term Velvet Revolution to denote Soros-sponsored coups. Defenders of Soros paint his velvet putches as benevolent arguing that Soros has freed millions from tin-pot despots, such as Slobodan Milosevic. Maybe so, but President Bush is no Milosevic, and the USA is no Yugoslavia. Mr. Soros' brand of help is neither welcome nor appropriate here. How exactly does one perpetrate a velvet revolution anyway? The seven-step strategy Soros used against Milosevic provides an instructive blueprint. And here we go. The Velvet Revolution. Step one, form a shadow government. Since 1991, Soros contributed over $100 million to Yugoslavia's anti-Milosevic movement, including to the militant youth group Otpor, which means resistance. Otpor grew quickly to 70,000 members, assuming leadership of the Serbian resistance. Step two, control the airwaves. Soros bankrolled opposition media in Serbia such as the A.N.E.M. Radio Network and its flagship station, Radio B-92. And of course, Soros has taken over the airwaves in the United States in many ways, not completely. But television, radio, we heard stories all last year about how he was buying a chain of Spanish language radio stations. Step three, bleed the state dry. Economic sanctions in civil war destroyed the Yugoslav state. Soros helped exacerbate both. The Soros-funded Human Rights Watch demonized Milosevic through wildly exaggerated reports of Serb atrocities. These charges led to economic sanctions and NATO intervention on behalf of separatist rebels. They brought in the NATO peacekeeping troops. That's what they needed because Milosevic was so terrible. And of course, you can see the global state propaganda media labeling all sovereign nationalist leaders around the world by the same terms. Think about how they describe Trump as a racist, totally unstable, going to get us into nuclear wars. They said he was a xenophobe for the Muslim ban. They said he was anti-scientific and responsible for the very deadly pandemic. And think about how they describe Putin. Think about how they describe Orban. Think about how they describe Bolsonaro. Bolsonaro. They claimed that Mohammed bin Salman was responsible for the dismemberment of Jamal Khashoggi, a prominent war hawk on Yugoslavia. Soros pressured Bill Clinton as early as 1993 to escalate the war by lifting an arms embargo against Bosnian separatists. And that's strange. I thought he was so peaceful. Emboldened by U.S. support, separatist rebels launched ethnic cleansing campaigns against Serb civilians living in the territories they claimed. The bloodiest such action was Operation Storm, an August 1995 offensive by Croatian forces, in which as many as 300,000 Serbs were driven from Krajina, an unknown number of Serb civilians slaughtered. The blood was not dry in Crina before Soros and his fellow hawks confronted Congress in December 1995 with a petition signed by 40 prominent policymakers urging massive U.S. intervention in the Balkans not to protect Serbs from further atrocities, but to escalate the war by intensifying support for separatist rebels. During this period, Bill Clinton allowed Osama bin Laden, to bring in Mujahideen volunteers from Islamic countries to terrorize the Serbs. These Mujahideen tortured and slaughtered Christian captives with appalling savagery. Many stayed in the Balkans, building a network of terror cells which remain active to this day. Oh, look at that. Bill Clinton did what George Soros wanted, and somehow Osama bin Laden got involved. Step four, so unrest. By September 2000, Yugoslavia lay in ruins, its people disheartened by 10 years of war, economic sanctions, and NATO bombing. Soros-sponsored media blamed every new catastrophe on Milosevic. Step five, provoke an election crisis. Yugoslavia's Velvet Revolution began on Election Day, September 26, 2000. Candidate Vojislav Kostonovic won 48.9% of the vote to Milosevic's 38.6%. However, Yugoslav law requires a 50 percent plurality to win. A runoff election was duly scheduled for October 8th, but Kustanovich refused to participate, citing exit polls that contradicted the official results. In fact, both sides had engaged in ballot stuffing, according to the respected British intelligence bulletin Jane Sentinel. Nevertheless, Soros-sponsored media noticed only Milosevic's vote rigging and screamed for his resignation. Kustonovich demanded that Milosevic step down. Step six, take the streets. Otpor activists gave lip service to a Gandhi-esque code of nonviolence. Yet when they staged their coup on October 5th, 2000, many relied not on Kumbaya sing-alongs, but on fists, boots, guns, and Molotov cocktails. On October 5th, Velvet revolutionaries rioted in Belgrade setting fire to the federal parliament building and the headquarters of the state television network, RTS. Jane Sentinel reports that Otpour units armed with AK-47s, mortars, and shoulder-launched anti-tank weapons set up roadblocks around Belgrade. Pretty incredible, isn't it? Lip service to nonviolence and extreme violence to follow, which will then be construed as peaceful protest that got out of hand. As long as the media participates in the branding and the framing, then societies accept the left-wing activism as true and legitimate. But it's anything but. We see this program again and again throughout the world. We saw it here in 2020. In fact, it was the subject of the Transition Integrity Project to describe this post-election phase and prepare for the take the streets step. All of this happened here. Step seven, outlast your opponent. Otpor's aggressive tactics and unshakable persistence convinced Milosevic that a long and bloody struggle lay ahead. Rather than risk civil war or NATO intervention, Milosevic stepped down. And in terms of the parallel that we're seeing here, this would be Donald Trump leaving the presidency on January 20th, 2021 to avoid civil war. Now, again, I am certain that Trump has plenty going on in the background. He did not just step down and let George Soros win. But this is what we have here. And it's funny because this last step outlasts your opponent. Well, that might make sense for them in the election context when they're in their final stages of fully infiltrating and taking over a society. But that's not going to work here. They're not going to outlast us here because these stories that they use to control the public's mindset and understanding of what's happening in the nation, well, that's all slipping because they don't have the truth. And these events that they continue to contrive in order to cause chaos and destabilize society, well, no one's really believing them anymore and no one's reacting the way they used to react to these events because the truth is going to win. They only have lies and contrived events to go on. Eventually, the public just either loses faith in the media and doesn't trust what they're saying, doesn't trust their framing of these events, or they simply get sick of it and stop participating. Either way, we will outlast that opponent. The deposed president was arrested and packed off to Holland for trial. Many readers will be surprised to learn that after three years of deliberations, the International Criminal Court in The Hague has yet to produce conclusive evidence that Milosevic committed war crimes. Neil Clark noted that the case against Milosevic relies largely on dubious allegations ginned up by the Soros-funded Human Rights Watch. Scandalously, the International Criminal Tribunal on Yugoslavia is itself awash in Soros money. Writing in the left-wing journal New Statesman, Clark reports that the tribunal, which complained in 1994 that it lacked sufficient funds to prosecute Balkan war crimes now thrives on contributions from George Soros, Time Warner and Disney, among others. That's right. Time Warner and Disney. Who would have thought it? And again, he's writing this in 2004. Look what we see now. And he finishes October surprise. In view of the catastrophes Mr. Soros has inflicted on so many foreign lands, his sudden rise to prominence in U.S. politics deserves closer inspection. Bellicose charges of vote rigging and calls for U.N. intervention, such as we heard lately from high-ranking Democrats, falls strangely on American ears. Yet for George Soros, such overheated rhetoric constitutes business as usual. The Democrat strategy taking shape in America this year strongly resembles a velvet revolution in the making. Every piece of the puzzle has fallen into place. Only the exact time and the nature of the final provocation, the signal for action, remains unknown. Curiously, Hillary Clinton told the New York Post's Cindy Adams on March 30th that an October surprise would likely decide the 2004 election. It will be outside forces, something unforeseen that suddenly happens, that tilts the election one way or the other, she predicted, with an odd note of certainty. Was Hillary just guessing? or does she know something we don't? In the remaining installments of this three-part series, we will examine further evidence that Velvet Revolution may be brewing among the party of the left. So again, there is absolutely nothing new under the sun. This same playbook plays out all over the world, all the time, different places, different times, slight variations of the playbook to conform to the appropriate culture and the cultural norms, the narratives that the culture might be obsessed with. But it's still the same thing, and they've been doing it forever, for the better part of a century at least. The battle lines have become clear now. All of this is clear. You can see it. The people supporting this global regime and supporting the regime's side in these color revolutions Those are the bad guys. They're the same bad guys across the world. They all support the same positions worldwide whenever they come up and they're all pushing that same agenda forward. We have to know exactly who they are because they must be stopped and they will be stopped because we will outlast our opponent. I'll be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work.